senior leaders often in, in the work I've done with them almost for years, they often overestimate their power and their knowledge. Middle managers often underestimate their influence and their information. Welcome to the Culture of Leadership. We have conversations that help you develop and become a more confident leader. Do you lead change well? If you answered no, then that's part of the problem. You tell yourself you don't lead change well. In today's episode, you'll learn how to navigate change. From learning how empathy and a mind shift make a big difference to understanding context and the importance of aligning the pace of change with the flow of your people. Our guest, Karuna Ramanatha, is a former naval warship captain with three decades of experience supporting senior leaders and organizations through change, including at the Center for Leadership in the Singapore Armed Forces. His book, Navigating the Seas of Change, was published in 2020. This is the Culture of Leadership podcast. I'm Brendan Rogers. Sit back and enjoy my conversation with Karuna. Why is change so hard for leaders? It's just counter habit. We are all programmed as human beings to seek consistency, to seek patterns, to, to let the conscious give way to the subconscious. And, and basically it's, it's the way we're wired in Edison biological levels, psychological level. We do not like doing different things too often. We might do it once in a while. We might stretch it into it once in a while. But if you tell me that every day is going to be different, it's actually quite a, it's quite a frightening proposition for most of us. It's, it's, well, what do you mean every day is going to be different? What am I expecting? I, I, I can't, it, you know, it's military commanders are trained to appreciate that very early in a concept called the fog of war. There is going to be a fog. A ship in harbor is never going to be the same at sea. But, but those, those vocations and professions spend a lot of time and money actually training people to think differently around it. Now for organizations, especially for, for, for young leaders who are stepping into organizations, that is actually quite a daunting topic to actually think that you will come up increasingly with conditions and stimulus that would actually kind of rattle you and the body's defense or rather the human being's defense to that is to shut it down. I mean, like, come on, I want to get back into safe zones and what's this change all about? So something has happened for me in the work that we've been doing over the last seven years. I, as a change consultant, I now empathize with individuals rather than to be kind of reactive, dismissive around attitudes around change, which is actually quite the populist movement, I actually start with every individual's predisposition to their insecurities around change. Now, it's a lot harder work in the first mile, but actually it kind of sits nicely as it kind of pays out into the middle uh, zone. Uh, I hope that's making sense. It is. There's a couple of things that where my mind goes, but is empathy one of the key things? Like you've been in this change environment for a long time. You mentioned empathy. How important is that in the change process? If we're going to work with people and essentially there is a change algorithm somewhere or there's a change equation somewhere, then I think it needs to be founded or anchored on the basic uh, belief that we are capable of respecting the other 
And we believe that we will be respected as well. And that together we will forge new areas to operate or to work in or to relate to. And, and therefore empathy is underpinned by the basic human belief of respect for one another, professional respect. And therefore then, if that is the case, then empathy is a leadership practice that we can easily bring quite naturally into the change challenge. It's such a powerful word, isn't it? We, we know that. But it can be so difficult in, dare I say, at the heat of battle. You know, there's lots of pressures on leaders and there's lots of pressure on people in organizations. How do you get the people that you work with to actually stop, think, have a level of emotional intelligence and, and get on that empathy path and understand the importance of it when they've got all these things happening all at once and going crazy and people needing so much from them all at once? There's several of these uh, kinesthetic activities that I actually encourage leaders, especially young leaders to think about. Take off your shoes. Just take off your shoes. Take off your shoes in your cubicle. Take off your shoes when you're sitting with someone else. Take off your shoes when you're at lunch. I mean, uh, uh, take off your shoes and be curious. For one thing, you get to keep your feet firmly on the ground, which is, which is actually telling the brain, Hey, I need to be grounded. I need to be firm. I need, I need to be aware of what's going on. But why don't you just take a peek at the other's shoe and see if you're actually capable of filling it? And if you're not, then we should be a little bit more curious as to why this person has got sneakers on or orange sneakers on or, or basically why, why, why is he or she got sandals on today? And that actually kickstarts the conversation around how are you today? And, and so what's happening in your life? And wow, those are really funny orange sneakers. You know, why orange? And we start then appreciating in story form as to how that person's perspective on that condition or that situation might actually bring to bear in terms of the change work we want to do. So it is a leadership. Empathy is a leadership practice that actually is pretty trainable for most people who come to work in organizations, for many people who come to work in organizations because they are good people. There's nothing clinically wrong with them. Well, almost all of them, there's nothing clinically wrong. And, and they actually want to be successful. So, so we, we, we flip that around as a condition now for successful leadership, for successful work that you need to do with the other because we can't afford to sit in our little uh, little caves and cocoons and actually want to just do whatever we would like to do. I mean, those are, there are jobs that require and do that well, like, like researchers and I don't know, lighthouse keepers, but for the most of it, we're not going to enjoy those positions in our personality. So I, I actually run a half day, uh, kinesthetic, uh, kind of modeling for individuals. I remember we did this once, uh, with an APEC sales team in, Wow, in Bali, and there were 34 people whose shoes were all over the place. And, and, and we actually asked people to go collect shoes and collect different shoes. And, and there was this, there was the, I think the CEO, he was this, he was this very strong leader, went around with a six inch heel. You know, he actually picked up a six inch heel and said, I know whose this is. I can imagine the life she, she has. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious about what else you do. And, and that's that, that's that whole, it's in us. I mean, it is, it is, it is part of our DNA. It's just that it, it doesn't come out the way we think or we think it should because we, we defend up. We defend up into change immediately. The moment something different pops up, we, 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 we fight, flight. We do all those things, right? So empathy, to come back to the point, is a huge enabler, a huge enabler for change. In fact, in some of my, in some of my postings uh, over the last few months, I've said it is the practice of leadership. 
I like what you're saying. The two things, trigger and or observation. My takeaway from what you're, if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, is that potentially the path to empathy and empathize more often to start this openness around change and you use the the shoes as a great example, is it that somebody or a leader needs to work on a trigger that stops them and then they catch themselves into empathy? Or is it that they need to be more observant around, to use an example you had, orange shoes? Hey, somebody's got something different about them or something unique about them today and then start a conversation on that and then that leads into empathy. I'm trying to get a balance. What is it? Is it the trigger that starts it or is it the observation that starts it? It is your drilled in practice. It is being curious when you step into a room. It is actually a, pre, a pre-shot format. So when you say being curious, what does that look like? I, I am, I am, for example, uh, I just had this conversation with a, a team of leaders yesterday. I said, I'm not going to walk into a meeting with my laptop half open and assume that everyone is ready for the meeting. I am going to commit to arriving early. I'm going to be seated in a, a particular spot in the room. I am going to actually uh, engage anyone who comes into the room. I am going to formalities as well, uh, but I'm going to say, hey, how are you? I'm going to pay some attention to the response that or the reaction of that person. I am actually going to make some small talk and I'm not going to build and uh, basically get past my agenda. So it's creating a connection. Yeah, it's actually going back to basics. And, you know, uh, and with... With the leaders that we are seeing, and particularly, uh, it's a it's a huge growth space opportunity for young, very able men and women coming out of educational institutions who have spent a lot of time and investment and money setting themselves up for first success and armed with their degrees when they step into the workplaces today. It is hugely challenging for them because I, I, to, to, to use a naval analogy, they're not boarding the ship in harbor. They're boarding the ship out at sea. So, so the ship is rolling. It is uncomfortable. It is all wet and slimy and difficult. And they're saying, whoa, wait a minute. I mean, this was not what I signed up for. Why are people so difficult? And that, that's really where they're changing. So, so we actually train them into, Hey, watch yourself step into it be sensible about some things and spend the first couple of minutes shaping what you believe to be reality and confirming that to your best extent. And actually, if you could do that in empathetic fashion, over a period of time, it, it translates into you being identified as a humble leader who's practicing humility, who's, who's always bothered or what, Hey, you mean you're not, you're not present today. I mean, like, is there something wrong? I mean, like, do you need some time off to deal with something? You know, those little things. And you know, when I run these workshops, I actually ask, can you give me a list of all these statements to make so that I can pull it off or drop down? And I said, well, this is the chat GPT thing, right? We always think that there's always a solution to something else, but it's the basic human dynamic. It's pretty much like if you're interested in having dinner with someone, you're not going to go straight into what that person's agenda is. You're going to, yeah, that, the act of circling the situation rather than to centering it too fast. It's really breaking this down to even further that connection, that relationship building and that ability to 
make people, other people feel that they matter to you. And if you've got that sort of barrier overcome, then you've got a foundation for whatever change that you're looking to work on. Is that right? Totally. Totally. It is about relational quotient. It is about relatability. It is about the commitment to building that relationship, professional relationship. And it is about actually, as we get into the advanced stages of it, it is to be becoming more conscious of the biases and the stereotypes and all the prejudices that we have accumulated over the last couple of years. And all of us are, all of us have that. And to be able to distill between noise and bias and to be able to kind of intervene at the right spot to be actively. So when you start into this frame, a whole lot of things start making sense. Active listening, communicating to influence, the curiosity, the intentionality. The, the work starts and ends with me, Brendan. It has got very little to do with the other. Pretty fundamental leadership principle, isn't it? Yeah, and that is not going to be achieved in a leadership course. Biases. You mentioned biases just then. Tell us more about that. What are the, the examples that you're seeing, maybe common examples of biases that you're seeing? I regularly suffer from overconfidence bias. I mean, it, 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 it kind of snares up quite often and I need to caution myself const, constantly. Wait a minute. You have no right to come to this conclusion just because you claim that 39 years of working experience have taught you some lessons and so you're sure what to do. I mean, that kind of thing. So it is an internal conversation that we increasingly as leaders have to start having with ourselves when we are faced with the whole problems around or the set of problems around change. What are those problems? Being asked to do something different in a context of an organization is problematic for most of us. I go back to the, to the problems. The, the, the root problem is the notion of success. We all, most of us, most of us, um, I mean, there might be a handful that see it otherwise, but most of us see success as being enabled by work, fulfillment at work, kind of achievements at work, performance at work, and all the other associated concepts. Uh, work to many of us is a means to an end. And if we're lucky enough to find those conditions that exist very well and, and we create those and we work it ourselves, it becomes a joy to go to work. And, and But what you don't get is, and you should not get, is love at work. So if you're overly obsessed with work, can you get all lovey-dovey about it? Then you tend to conflate or confuse happiness with it. And that makes for a lot of misery in due course for most of us because our standards at which we hold happiness to, which are largely personal, are not quite the same as success. There's a lot being said about success in terms of success is largely dependent on what you choose to do. Now, in the change paradigm, that's really quite true. It is what you choose to do with yourself as you become more influencing, influenceable, you kind of build your influence around others. And that actually redefines leadership because leadership is no longer the traditional power position based definition, but it is largely influence. So an influence, uh, I mean, in that, in this addition, where, where the change becomes alive is because complexity and uncertainty and ambiguity is built up to a point where you actually cannot afford to believe that what's been done in the past is actually going to be sufficient to what you're going to do in the future. So the, the, the root space here is influence. To what extent are we prepared to actually build our influence skills? 
And that's a whole lot of self-investment because actually when you start doing that, you kind of look up to change a little more comfortably to say, it's okay. I don't really get it at this point, but I actually believe we can sit down and talk about this and get this going. And I would not be any lesser for it successfully because we are, we can do this. So that, that tremendous implications for the work that we do with organizations. These are the bedrocks around teams. These are the bedrocks around kind of dealing with the biases. These are like the calling out. So sometimes you hear the word, I mean, we hear psychological safety. It's actually a condition that arises quite nicely when leaders actually commit to working in a certain way. We hear about diversity and inclusivity. I mean, diversity is largely designed, but inclusivity is mostly a leadership act. It is, it is the willingness to respect other people and, and to actually understand that their, their point of view is actually going to matter. That exactly is where we need to go with so many people. And I'm a little troubled about that over the last few months because the space for this work is no longer, Brendan, at the top. The space for this work is at the middle. <laughs> and the middle is actually three times bigger than the top pool. So you take any organization, it's about 5%, 3 to 5% of top leaders management classified, right? I mean, maybe some talent, some stretch, some really able people, three to 5%. And then you look at the bottom 50 to 60%. These are the folks who actually get out there and do their work and they go back home and they are looking for rules and processes and they're looking for SOPs, uh, standard operating procedures. But it's the middle managers, the supervisors, the managers, the project leads, the team leads, the people who actually suddenly trust in the, fr in the front of a project who actually increasingly feel a lot of tensions, most of them non-creative tensions, who actually have to deal with these ambiguities and the vulnerabilities in front of the uncertainties and the lack of data or the other loss. So actually, you get back to it, the whole change space affects the middle the most, and the middle is where the action needs to be. And all these people actually need a lot of help very quickly because it's getting a little brutal out there. Is this where your adaptive leaders view and program comes in working with that level from my understanding? Is it focused around overcoming these sort of challenges? Totally. It's Tell a us a bit more about that then. What is what is this term adaptive leaders and adaptive team leaders program? What's the objective and how does that move forward? How does that move people forward in that space? We believe we don't need to help managers manage better. Managers got to where they are because they are trusted dependable, competent, loyal, aligned. They pretty much know how to manage the work. They may not have enough resource managing the work or the resource might not be at a capability that they desire. But that's exactly where this is. We don't, we, we, we believe we don't have to teach managers, manager skills. And there's a whole lot you can do. And basically the, the act organizations are organized around the waterfall work groups. And the structure is such that uh, alignment would probably kind of uh, manage expectations around work. And there's enough language out there in management and organization management. They're quite synonymous. KPIs, key performance indicators, deliverables, work plans, outputs. Performance improve, performance, uh, performance effectiveness is largely an individual exercise. And so therefore, the behaviors associated with managers, supervisors, team leads are largely individual. This is where we come in with our, with our hope that 
a good number of managers can actually make the shift from manager to leader. And then the pushback becomes, I'm not a leader. I don't have that position. How do I expect to be a leader? And we say that actually it's leadership. So it's manager to leadership. Because not only do you need to now manage the work, you need to work with people. And when you work with people, you don't manage them. You don't manage your children. You don't manage your brother and sister. You don't manage your parents. You don't, it's not a very nice thing to do because you're managing them. You actually need to lead them, which means define then it is actually, you need to be able to influence them in a positive manner to be able to kind of let them step up into spaces that they actually thought that they would not want to get into. So that is the change shift that we need to see. So what the Adaptive Leader Program does is it breaks that down into confidence in sense-making skills only to the point where you can work across an organization rather than just top down. So now you're working with your peers and you're more confident working with people you don't control or you don't write reports on and you are kind of looking to relate to that person and all that stuff we spoke about in the room and watching people being curious, being empathetic, being all that adds up into your toolkit and skill sets. And after a while, it becomes your change DNA frame where you actually look at people and work with, I, I don't like you, but I believe the two of us need to work together. So can we just stay at that level and get this done and get on because I'm not going to have dinner with you. I, I don't, I don't need to meet you outside work, you know. And that actually sets the stage, Brandon, for learning because there is a direct correlation. And, and this has been researched many times. The greater the complexity and uncertainty, the greater the stance in learning where you actually have to build in the insights and you have to watch the, watch the stresses and you have to not repeat those bad things that will has happened in the project or whatever the lessons learned. So that is a commun, that is a collaborative activity. So that's the shift that we help managers make from managers to adaptive team leaders. And we became very concerned about it because we run these programs for organizations while uh, typically an ROI or a measurement at the end of a leadership workshop can be anywhere from 8% to 25%. And these are all statistically proven. And uh, change programs can go up to 35, 40%. That's the Johnson & Johnson example. For us, we've been consistently hitting 50 to 75% because we manage, we manage to convince the manager that this is a skill set that you can grow quite effectively and use quite successfully to get your work done as well as to contribute to other work. But it is expensive. I mean, consultants don't come cheap. And that's where I, before the, before the interview, I started that we actually put out a platform there to kind of absorb a lot of that cost. And, and it is, it's actually three times cheaper. And you can look it up in a play store. I mean, basically, I mean, you can look it up in the app store. It's just change leader and, and it's worth, it's worth a look because it is actually a gamification guide, uh, using your phone over eight months to take you through various stages that you can develop your most useful for young leaders. I think who are so happy working with their phones. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we certainly put a link to all of these things in the show notes as well. You've mentioned influence a number of times now. How do you define influence? The impact we have on others and the extent to that impact that is deemed as intentional in the first place, which means I am not blindsided by the way I affected you. I actually was quite intentional and therefore my influence has grown. It is a, it is the balance between intent and impact. And intent such a powerful word as well in the leadership space. What sort of intent do you need to have 
as a leader and take personal responsibility for to have the right level of influence? I believe that uh, leadership remains a moral and ethical undertaking. It's a commitment to moral and undertaking ethical standards. The problem with this is this balance is difficult for most when you start thinking a little bit about it. It goes back to deep concepts like character, even deeper personality, psychological needs, the whole lot of stuff, the way we were brought up, you know, uh, your, your religious affiliation, spirituality, whatever the case might be. There's a lot there. So that level of self-awareness is the who you are, how did you get here, what really has happened to you and with you, and why do you think the way you do? Kind of that stage is actually an internalization of who do you choose to be? It starts with being uncomfortably existential and abstract for most of us. And, and, and some of us are just not prone for this kind of thing. But I believe all leaders, managers, every individual out there could do a lot better by spending a little bit of time thinking about who do I choose to be? And then in that transference, you actually start to decide what kind of influence I am actually going to bring onto the other in order to do what? And in the context of an organization or a team, it's always good to stay professional, professional for the most part, so that you actually stay focused on the results, uh, the work we need to do together. You and I, Brendan, need to work together. I mean, I, Brendan, I, I really want to work with you on this. And, and you need to let me know if, I, I mean, I know I've pissed you off many times in the past, but for example, you know, that kind of thing is actually a step down. It's a, a humility exercise. It is a, Look, I am sorry I stepped on your toes several times. I, I know that, you know, and, and is there anything I could do to make that easier for me? Can I have an open feedback channel? You know, can we do that? So in Change Reader, we create all that. We create peer feedback mechanisms. It is continuous analytics on the individual, but, but we're not talking about a product now. Let's just go back to the philosophy of influence. Who do I choose to be and what exactly am I bringing on here into the table? And as a leader, that step comes from me. I do not expect to run a workshop to actually or a team meeting to say, put everything you have on the table. It's actually quite worrying when I see that happen. It is, it is the leader's, it is the leader's step forward into the discomfort it goes back. So the whole idea of influence is example. It is the example that I will set. And this is the, this is the way I choose to behave. And it sits underpinning my moral, ethical, constructs and and we are not going to stab each other in the back here as long as we are working on this project for example so much of what you say makes sense are we as people in the leadership space and organizations generally and there's all this stuff that you read about unsuccessful change programs and transformations is a buzzy word all those sorts of things are we actually making change harder than what it needs to be? Or are we building up change into something harder than what it actually is? It's a very, very good question to ponder on. We have clients whom we have worked with who have done amazing things by helping their people develop the opportunities to change the way they think, they act, and they feel. Essentially, anything that is complex has to be taught through differently, and we can teach that. And, and in the case of if, it, if it's a live project, we actually do that quite well. In fact, the percentages are higher when you actually deal with real work. I mean, so in, in our zone, we don't do case studies. We don't do theories. We don't do 
We don't do readings. We don't do, we, we simply get into the crux. I mean, we actually roll up sleeves and wear t-shirts into the sessions and it's just, just get into how we might choose to think differently. But there's also the whole backstage work around personality, psychological needs, the way in which we are wired, how different people look at things differently, whether we carry with us pre-formatted fears and anxieties, there's a bit of storytelling and narratives that we use. We actually come to terms with the fact that every one of us in the room are quite different. And, and is that a strength or is that going to be a problem? And then we get into, we get into data, information, knowledge, wisdom. We get into those things and, and people start to suddenly feel that, wait a minute, I can do all this with others, and, and we get them across. Now, where the problem starts often is when the pace of change does not quite equate the flow that is required to move things. I mean, this is systems thinking language, but pace is largely associated with strategy and with timelines and demands of the board and all the other investor considerations and growth markets and all this hurry up, we need to get this done, merger and acquisition is pace. Flow relates to the readiness of people to actually unfreeze themselves, create water-like movements together and not have to hit against walls and dams and rocks metaphorically to actually get the work going in the direction they need to see it. And, 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 and the irony of this is that for most organizations, you're actually asking the same successful people who are actually good in the middle, who are doing business as usual work to actually do more. And, and it's very, very troubling. And so the first reaction as you go into the start of this interview is I want to avoid all unnecessary things in my life and I need to get an I home and I, and that is purely justified. So we do quite a bit with that to actually assess whether I, I as a consultant, I've changed consultant. I've actually been notorious in turning down work. Which means that if this is where the CEO wants to go and it's largely ambition, uh, ambition shrouded in vision, and this is where the organization currently is, there's no way you're going to be doing that very quickly. And most leaders are impatient. So that's where the problem is. Most are impatient. Most are superficial. Most actually blame people and they find themselves in a bit of a spot. I mean, why don't you do what we need to do is, is, is actually very superficial in this space. I hope I'm making sense, Regan. To me, you are. And I'm pretty sure to our audiences or our audience definitely as well. The 60, 70% of those middle managers, let's say team leaders, supervisors, that sort of type that you referred to where the, the real work needs to happen, particularly around this. What sort of signs do they need to be conscious of in that flow to know the pace that they can start to move along and have the empathy to move their team along? How do they pick that up? What do they need to pick up? We quickly help them in kind of thinking formats that bring out into the conscious space and the discussion space, the tensions around capacities, capabilities, and commitments. Tell us more about capacity, capability, commitment. It's actually quite straightforward when you look at the three to, uh, in isolation, but, but, the, but the trick is in how you put that together. So capacity simply 
simply refers to headcount, to resource, to, to, to how many people you have on the team, uh, how many, how many people you have available. I mean, uh, but capacity introduces a whole series of other issues. Are these people new? Are they competent? Are they proficient? Do they have enough knowledge? Uh, are they, are they, is, is one of them caregiving it right now? You know, is there a distraction? Uh, is, so there's a whole lot of stuff there. And, and, and you know, Brendan, they're all people related stuff. You know, it's, this is where the empathy comes in where you actually have to start to look at every person as an individual, not as a human resource, but as an individual capable of doing work. And then that, that would be what work. The capability is a lot more technical because you, you take it, you take an IT manager, for example, who's leading an IT project and, and a project is on digitalization. What do you do when you come across cybersecurity challenges? And, and, and IT people will tell you that, that they find it very uncomfortable to deal with cybersecurity challenges. Now, that is a capability. Do you hire it? Do you rent it? Do you buy it? Do you partner it? Do you offer it? Do you, what, what do you do when you don't have that? So a lot of transformation projects kind of gloss over the capability issue. So we teach managers how to flag that out because if not, they would subcon- subconsciously carry that that anxiety with them or worse still even ignore it to the point that after a while it becomes too invested already to kind of you turn back. And that's where a lot of resource actually gets, gets kind of compromised because we actually wasted our time doing this project when we should have figured that this is going to be a big gaping hole in the end. And why are we this way? So there's a capability capacity. And then we get to the commitment equation, part of the equation. And that is a lot more serious for a lot of transformation projects. A lot of what needs to happen is not going to happen just in the organization. It's going to happen with stakeholders, vendors, partners, maybe some authorities, maybe the government institutions. And what is the level of commitment for this project? And we teach, we teach managers to actually question that in the first mile. Because a lot of times we do find, unfortunately, senior leaders want to build an idea very quickly, and that's the pace, and uh, kind of ignore quite conveniently or maybe as an afterthought, yeah, okay, we need to just make sure we got that. But but it's the manager that gets dumped with the whole thing. And then they say, well, this is not moving. Why is this not moving? And so we, we give them a a sense-making a technique to actually question the commitments that would be required to build and question the commitments. So I'll go back to capacity, capability, commitment, the three Cs. I love it, the three Cs for change. Is that something you came up with? And if so, what's your sort of personal story, if there is one, attached to that? Where did these capacity, capability, commitment actually come out for you in the journey, this 39-year journey you've been on in the space? I mean, I've had some wonderful opportunities and worked with some amazing people, as we all would have had if you had had four decades of experience. But I think the really, really big project that I did was part of with a, with an amazing team, uh, and it included consultants as well from overseas, was when we made a deliberate effort to shift the culture of the military in Singapore. And I think we did that in nine years. And these three words resonated because there was a lot of I, a military system is 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 generally an artificial system because it's largely a training system in a synthetic environment and and luckily enough because you don't really want them operating in a real environment, but it is it starts with commitment and there is there is there is abundant large relatively abundant capacity but capability becomes a problem. 
because because uh, what you train for might not be what you're good at, you know, or what you need to be good at. So we kind of worked that with soldiers, sailors, and airmen. It was a very, very big population group in the Singapore military. And I got to dabble with competency-based leadership learning, action learning, uh, stories and narratives, gamification, the building of serious games, uh, kind of like helping helping leaders tell stories and helping people on the ground kind of frame lessons for that. And there's a lot of stuff that we did there. And then you realize that actually capacities, it is actually a potential multiplier when you link it up with capability. And if you can, if you can, if you can pair it up well, you get people who are actually very enabled and you get concepts like empowered teams and you get all that. So that took very, very significant culture shift till today. That learning orientation remains in the Singapore military and, and it, it's moved from that scolding and yelling and screaming and ordering, which happens and needs to happen, but it is fairly penned down into the curiosity, the advo- the, the inquiry versus the advocacy, the tensions are creative. The learning orientations enable the military to actually kind of uh, exponentially increase its, its, its actually its effectiveness. So that was a nine year piece of work that I, I was very, very fortunate to, to be, to be able to participate in and learn and to be, to be actually trusted in a very senior, fairly senior position to be able to lead some of it across hundreds of, of soldiers, sailors, and airmen. And so, so I learned quite a bit there. This, this actually kind of popped up there. Again, just researching yourself, but I, to say, yes, we'd love to have you on the show for starters, but then in preparation for today, um, it's certainly pretty well documented. You've had a fantastic career in Singapore military and, and what you've done there and also in Singapore government. So congratulations on the work that you've done. Singapore is a fantastic country. I've, I love it. Um, spend a bit of time there. You said right at the top of the show that there's a mindset in sort of the military versus change versus organizations and change. I imagine that you, given your background and experience in the military and what you've just touched on, understand that mindset better than most. And you're probably delivering it in your programs around change in organizations. But what is that difference? Or what are those differences that you alluded to? Great question. And leadership has always been about context. The appreciation of the conditions requiring aspects of leadership is largely contextual, just as leadership has always been about practice to become a better leader. It's the only known way is through practice. So the military is for the large part a artificial synthetic environment. It, it, it actually carefully trains its people and then it selects and all militaries around the world do this. Everyone's subject to training and some people are selected into positions and, and it is not, it is, it is quite Difficult to imagine an imposter in a position of leadership in a military. It is just quite impossible. I mean, if we go back to the Vietnam War, West Pointers getting into theater in the late 60s and early 70s, were there were famous stories of them being shot by their own people because they, they would bring the theory in and, and they would not have any ground experience. So, so, so that's gone on. It's just like working on ships. I've worked on ships for like 11 years. I've commanded two warships and I'll tell you that, that the ship does not put to sea until you believe that everyone is well trained and actually everyone knows his or her role as part of a crew. That environment, when we try to change anything, is pretty much leveraging or riding on the hierarchical structures and the hierarchical orders. So get it done. We're going to get it done. We get it, get it done by when. And because if you don't get it done, something is, is going to happen and someone is going to basically get into trouble. And, and basically that is visibly hierarchical. 
And that's what people in the chain look for. They look for the hierarchical order around change, which then means if my boss tells me to do it, I'm going to do it because my boss is, believes that it needs to be done. If my boss, conversely, if my boss does not tell me to do it, I'm not going to do it because actually that's not what is needed here. I'm just going to listen to my boss. Now, that order is advantageous to change, but it can also be problematic to change because we've also had some examples in militaries where you have factions and people don't want to do this and don't want to do that. And then they're all this. I mean, you take the army, you take the Air, Navy and the Air Force, there are three different major cultures, you know. Okay, let's get to organizations. For a large part, management has actually evolved through bureaucratic control. And basically, bureaucracy has been quite intensely embedded in organizational forms. Of course, there are a few forms that actually sit outside that. But for a large part, any big visible organization is bureaucratic. And bureaucracy or the language of bureaucracy is simply management by process, management by order, management by rules, management by protocols, management by systems, by platforms. So when people cannot see that change originating in the process, a new process, change management type thing. They cannot understand that. They cannot, they cannot, they cannot see the use of it. it, it you start to kind of move towards that resistance that, that yeah, actually it's change work is quite notorious for. Now, what do you then do? So there are two different systems. Organizations are bureaucratic. Governments are even more bureaucratic than organizations. Militaries are hierarchical. And basically that hierarchy actually has an impediment change. Now, what these organizations, more so the organizations that are built for profit, are increasingly having to deal with is not so much the change, but the rate of change. The rate of change is increasingly problematic because its algorithm probably includes both pace and flow, not just pace. And when that happens, a lot of people in the organization, especially people with influence influence roles, like if we talk about the middle managers, they are largely influence people, project leads, team leads. They actually become very anxious and confused. And what are we trying to do here? Why is this so important and, and how's this going to affect me? I mean, like, uh, I don't have enough people. These are kind of symptoms that pop up when we get to the rate of change. I want this done in a year and a half. It's not going to happen. Will it happen in two and a half years? It might. What do you need to do to get that happening? So that's really where that, that influence base is. And I will say this, it's, it's not meant to be a cheeky comment, uh, 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 Senior leaders often in, in the work I've done with them almost for years, they often overestimate their power and their knowledge. Middle managers often underestimate their influence and their information. So a lot of the shared consciousness, the knowledge management problems that we are seeing is not about process. It's about middle managers underestimating what they know and what's going to be important to the organization and, and basically being overwhelmed. And so, so, so the change game is actually an important one right now. It's actually a future skill, a change, change skill sets are good future skill sets for all of us to have particularly for leaders who are finding themselves having to work with others very quickly at the entry in the middle point of the organization. And you should not be too worried about getting it 
if the organization is in transformation, it is actually an invest, uh, in, investable area to kind of enable as many middle managers as possible to actually get on board and not feel that they're being burdened by work. I hope this is making sense. Mate, it is. You mentioned a really powerful word earlier again, context, which again, I'm 100% on board with that around the leadership space. And this word pace comes up a bit. If I'm a supervisor, team leader, middle manager, how do I influence, given that we're talking about responsibility and choice as well, how do I influence the context of the pace of change? My focus as a manager has always got to be about the work. And then my curiosity is around the people around that work. I can't flip that around. I can't be focusing on, which is what managers tend to do. They flip it around. They are curious about the potency of the work and where this is going to get them. And then they are focused on the people and they flog them. I mean, like basically literally end up unconsciously flogging them, you know. But if you stay focused on the work and basically the people and you're curious about exactly what's coming up, you actually can work the context. You can actually, we call it going from circling to centering. You can center and recenter based on the realities around you rather than a hypothetical, yeah, just go do it. You know, this is pretty straightforward. You know, that's all hypothetical. So we actually teach managers to think differently around difficult work. You see, uh, Brendan, 70% of what managers do are known to them. 60, 70%. It has to be. I mean, you are in a supervisory position. You are really dependent. But when an organization is in transformation, 20, 30% of the work that's coming to them would start to get foggier, would start to get a little messier, would start to get a little bit more uncomfortable. We operate the 30% with them. We believe that they are already good at that 70%. And that 30% is largely contextual, not as much as it is content-based. It's about reading the situation, reading the room, kind of looking as to where to balance uh, probes that you can build and take. I mean, like if you have some of us are familiar with the Kenefin model, we use that quite a bit in our work. Uh, how do you look at complexity? How do you differentiate between complexity and potentially uncertainty? How do you take on two points of view? There's a lot of skill sets there that you can, these are cognitive skill sets, not taught in school. No, mate, there's a lot of things not taught in schools, certainly in Australia anyway. I can't comment for Singapore schools, but yeah, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> the next part of that question is how do you set the context managing up when the context is, as you said before, the context is just not always that realistic from the people that somebody is reporting to? We go back to centering the conversation on the work rather than the problems. The same application, different scenario, but just similar application of application. We 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 teach we teach managers very quickly to be confident in presenting questions around the work and not uh, be sliding into their anxieties and worries and asking for reassurance. But these are pay grade questions that we actually help them frame. And listen, boss, you are the one with the pay grade. I just need you to help me understand this. And if you don't have an answer, I'm prepared to see your boss above you. And most times bosses will not allow that. So we, we actually induce that, that whole mechanism and we frame the help managers become more comfortable. Don't say it simply framing questions around difficult 
choices they have to make. You've done work fairly extensively around the work, work with lots of people from different countries. And Is there countries or is there cultures that you find are better adapting to change? Totally. Tell us more. There are some cultural differences that are quite obvious. And that, that has also been linked to innovation work and all that. It's like heavily organized cultures, very, very, very paternalistic cultures might actually look at change work quite differently than the overcome improvised adapt. I mean, I spent two years, I spent two years in the, in the Australian Navy on exchange service, actually allowed at Sydney at Waterhen. Uh, in 1995, 96, I was, I was, I'm always reminded by, by how laid back Australians look, but how focused they are. It's, it's a very, very, very important lesson. Having come from Singapore, it was one of my first learnings, you know, do not equate the number of hours you spend at work. So there's a lot of imagination. The Americans are good at what they do. The Israelis are actually with their backs against the wall all the time. And, and then you have some, you have some entitled cultures who actually are very contented, who actually have uh, lots of uh, natural resources that they can bank on. And so work becomes, change becomes extremely difficult there. And for the large part, cursory. Take Singapore, for example. Singapore has been a migrant culture. I mean, we, we, our beginnings are a migrant culture. And till today, there is this achievement orientation. There is this success equation. Of course, it's arguable that it's come at the expense of some of the other social areas that we would have liked to have worked on a little bit more over the years. But it's now every man out there, every woman out there trying to hit hard and hit fast and Healthy, unhealthy, well, is open to debate. So there are actual cultural differences. And this becomes very interesting in a multinational setting. And we do actually have workshops that we actually have. I've actually got clients who actually have a range of people, say, from the South South. South Indian uh, continent, from the Indian continent, from Japan. I work with Apex groups. You can immediately see different orientations. Now, these go back. Uh, how do we how do we work with this? Then we believe that empathy is actually universal. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. Is your ability to adapt to change and to lead change wholly set as a starting point in mindset? The choice that you make. I am going to be better and more adaptive to change, or I don't like change? I start with the, this was the start of this wonderful interview, right? I mean, basically we started by saying, I don't like change. I don't like, Karuna does not like change. Brendan doesn't like change. We all don't like change. But I don't use mindset. I think it's a, it's a pretty beaten up word. I mean, uh, mindset, mental models, these are sticky concepts. How do you unpack it? For most people, no, I don't want to talk about mindset. We get into mind shifts, and we, 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 we work mind shifts in, in, we, or rather we liberate mind shifting movements in cognitive, affective, emotive work that we do. So basically translated, it simply means how you can choose to think, how you can choose to act, and how you can choose to feel about difficult situations. And most managers take on to that because they, they, most managers tell us that they, they, are, they, as they are, they are facing difficulties. They are not comfortable with certain things. And so, hey, why don't you choose to think, act, and feel in a different way? And and that is a mind shift. So it doesn't, we don't really care where your mindset is, but we believe that wherever you are with that, you are capable of shifting it to the extent that you choose to. So it goes back to the fundamental question as who do you choose to be? I do love mind shift. The reason why I love it, my first thought is it is a shift which requires change. 
which links very well to the topic of change, doesn't it? Totally, totally. And and let's be respectful here, Brendan. I mean, we don't really want to deter. We don't really want to put a value on that. We don't want to put a currency on it. We don't want to. We don't want to tell people you need to shift by this much. You need to change by this much. And we're going to measure your change. I, I think all that is disrespectful. Uh, most people are programmed for success, and they will make that effort. The question is whether that effort is enough for them and visible to others, and and that's what we measure. Mate, you use the term confident leader, which we love here on the cultural leadership, all about creating confident leaders. What's that one bit of advice that you want somebody listening and watching this episode to take about their approach, their mind shift to change moving forward? I think you can choose to be whoever you want to be. And it's a bit like, it's a bit like, you know, exercise. If you, if, if, if you believe you have a health problem, you might want to exercise. But if you believe that you want to be fit and successful, you also need to exercise and you need to discern between those two. So why are you doing what you're doing? And that level of introspection is not deeply reflective mindfulness. All that's good stuff if you can do it, but it's simply a practical view to becoming a little bit more successful in the world. And we all need that. We all, we don't have, we don't have rich inheritances, most of us, you know, so we're going to have to work it ourselves and we're going to have to depend lesser on other known set pieces and to just kind of build a cadence around exactly how we wish to be successful. One advice would be you can choose to be who you want to be. Choice. Love it. Karuna, what has helped you become this confident leader that we see in front of us today? I think I've made so many mistakes in 40 years that I would wish not on others. And I think my contribution to any coaching, coaching conversation is now, wait a minute, I did something like that 25 years ago. And, and you might want to think about that. <laughs> it's a fair point, mate. It's a fair point. It's uh, yeah. Le- leadership can be a road to lots of gray hairs in my own experience. <laughs> totally. Anyway, maybe I'm a little bit of a slower learner than others. <laughs> <laughs> it's taken me 40 years. <laughs> Well, you're doing all right, mate. You're doing all right. Thanks for the affirmation, mate. It's coming a bit later, but I'll still accept it. (laughs) Karuna, look, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I love the practicality of the approach you're taking around change. And it's not just something you've come up with. There's, as you said, four decades of experience attached to this. You've had lots of learnings along that journey, a few hardships along the way. That's part of leadership and the learning experience and the journey we're on. But it's been a fantastic conversation. Thanks so much for coming on, sharing this change journey, giving these leaders some insight into what can help them become more confident about change. Really appreciate you being a fantastic guest on the Cultural Leadership Podcast today. And thank you for this privilege. You know, it's always amazing to be able to share these thoughts that don't come out quite naturally. And so the interview process was really good. I hope that I bring value to leaders and and I'm more than happy to chat with any of them should they wish to get a bit more insight as to the mistakes Karuna has made. (laughs) It's a pleasure and you absolutely have. Thank you. Senior leaders overestimate their power and knowledge. Middle managers often underestimate their influence and their information. Focus on changing this and the change journey has a greater chance of success. These are my three key takeaways from my conversation with Karuna. My first key takeaway, confident leaders respect people. They show empathy and aren't dismissive of people's attitude towards change. They proactively take time to understand a person's insecurities. This empathetic approach during change 
will take additional time up front, but it will lead to time savings and better outcomes as the change process continues. My second key takeaway, confident leaders understand context. In their decision-making and communication, they understand the environment, team dynamic, and the broader landscape. When across the nuances of each situation, they tailor their approach and leads change with more successful outcomes. My third key takeaway, confident leaders control the pace of change. The problem occurs when time pressures are misaligned with people dealing with change. If the pace can be aligned with the flow of the people, then the change journey will be smoother. Insecure leaders are impatient, superficial, and lay blame during change. Confident leaders won't be controlled by time pressures. They'll focus on aligning the people flow with the pace of change. So in summary, my three key takeaways were confident leaders respect people, confident leaders understand context, and confident leaders control the pace of change. Let me know your key takeaway on YouTube or at thecultureofleadership.com. Thanks for joining me and remember, the best outcome is on the other side of a genuine conversation. Thanks for listening to The Culture of Leadership. You can access the show notes at thecultureofleadership.com. If you enjoy the show, please follow, rate, and give a review on your favorite podcast platform.